My name is Brandon Moore. And I'm Jackie. This is my wife. Uh, I am the director of college ministry. I'm a resident here at the church. And um, I didn't always want to go into ministry, being in ministry. Uh, growing up, I was actually very adamant that I wanted to play professional baseball. And that was all I did to the neglect of school and relationships and everything. So I became a believer when I was 10 and um, at Passion 2012 is when I felt like the Lord called me personally to ministry. I was a sophomore in college and I had no idea what that meant or how to do that. But I just knew that at some point, somehow, I was supposed to do ministry in some way. And all the while I play, um, playing college baseball, get to play professionally. Um, but I got hurt in 2015 and uh, really sent me into a really dark time because um, I realized I had to retire and uh, I realized just how much of my identity, even though I was a Christian, my identity was built on uh, baseball. So it was kind of a bit of a midlife crisis for both of us at 24. At 24, I hit a midlife crisis and uh, the Lord was doing all kind of work in me. And so, but it was in that season that I just pressed into the Lord, asking him, okay, what is it, if it's not baseball, what is it that you want me to do? And that's when I was called into ministry. And so I went to go tell Jackie. I knew that's what the Lord was telling him. I wanted so bad to be supportive, but I have this like thing where I have to tell the truth and be honest. And I said, oh, but I was called to ministry. So I don't know if that's gonna work for both of us to be called to ministry. So since 2016, it has been a process and a, a really fruitful process for Jackie and I to figure out what doing ministry yeah. together, both being called to uh, ministry looks like. Even when we, when we didn't know exactly what um, obedience was gonna bring, we knew that we had to be obedient to Him mm-hmm. uh, because the Lord is the one directing our steps. We love this area in Huntersville and it's been one of the sweetest times amidst one of the hardest years of our life. Um, and so it's just been really cool to um, just know that the Lord is faithful no matter what we go through in our life. Yeah. Ask the Lord what He wants to do with your life and be obedient to Him. Yeah. Be obedient in small things and enough small obedience leads to potentially big obedience down the road uh, when your entire life changes uh, like it has for, for both of us when we were called into ministry. You may not be called into ministry, but the Lord is calling you to obedience. Father, we come to you now, and we ask that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the food of your word, that you would use it to nourish our souls, and that you would teach us this morning that man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lord, if there are folks here today who don't know you, I pray that, Lord, you would open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ in your word, and you would open their hearts to receive the good news of the gospel. For those of us who do claim Christ, would you teach us what it looks like to be faithful and to endure until the end as gospel witnesses for your glory? I ask, Father, that my speech and my message would not be with plausible words of wisdom, but that they would be a demonstration of your spirit and of your power so that our faith wouldn't rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask these things by faith now, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's nighttime. The ship's moved by some terrible power at a terrific speed. Though it's imperceptible in the darkness, I have an intuition that we're headed towards a shore. No one else seems to be aboard the vessel. I'm alone. 
I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. I reckon it's the speed that's strange to me. According to Gideon Wells, who served as the Secretary of the Navy, President Abraham Lincoln often recounted this dream, which in his words, he had preceding nearly every great and important event of the war, following major battles, before the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, and before the 13th Amendment. And as his personal bodyguard, William Henry Crook, would later write, he recalls the president telling that he had this dream once again before he left to go to Ford's Theater, where he was later assassinated. When you look at Lincoln's life like you look at the Apostle Paul's life, you think of people who, and they, were, they were people of destiny. It seemed as if God's hand was simply moving them throughout every stage of their journey, leading them to accomplish His purposes for their life, and then bringing them to shore when it was done. Perhaps unbeknownst to us, though, this morning, when we talk about being people of destiny, that doesn't just apply to people like Abraham Lincoln and the Apostle Paul. It applies to every person who's turned from their sin to trust in Christ alone. Every single believer has a destiny given them by God. That might not make sense to us because, on the other hand, we're responsible for the decisions we make. And yet, unseen to us, but clear in the mind of God, is God's sovereignty and our responsibility coming together to accomplish His perfect plan. And where we can't understand that, we rest and trust in God's majesty and in His holiness, and we fear Him. And He's worthy of our worship and of our praise. But that begs the question then, how now shall we live? How should we live under the sovereign authority of the one who, according to Ephesians 1.11, works all things according to the counsel of His will? When we look at the Apostle Paul's life, we see a man who is destined by God to defend the gospel. And yet, a man who chose time and time again to surrender the world's fleeting pleasures in order to be found obedient to His heavenly calling. And it's that path that I want us to follow this morning. A path that goes from Acts 22, verse 30, through chapter 26, verse 32. So if you have your Bible, take it and turn with me to Acts chapter 22, verse 30. And we're going to cover these four chapters today. Now I think Pastor Ronnie is a prophet because he foresaw that Arkansas would defeat Tennessee. And so, me being from Arkansas and him being from Tennessee, he wanted to stick it to me this morning, and so he gave me four chapters to preach. And that's really the reason we're doing this. But in surveying Paul's trials on his way to Rome, what we walk away with is we, we walk away with how we go about enduring for the gospel. So what I want us to do is I want us to survey, sort of take a 30,000-foot view of these four chapters in order to understand the episodes that unfold here. So we're kind of thinking Paul's life here is a movie 
with four episodes unfolding. So let's follow these episodes here. You keep one eye on the screen, one eye on the text, and one eye on me, okay? There's a problem if you can do that. So, episode one, trial before the Sanhedrin. Paul goes to Jerusalem to deliver the offering he's collected for the believers there and to testify of the gospel. He's falsely accused by the Jews. He's brought to trial by Claudius Lysias, who is the commander of the Roman legion station in Jerusalem. He's brought before the Sanhedrin so he can figure out, why are you all ticked off at Paul? What is it that's going on here that makes you so upset? And as he watches, Paul stands before them and says, Brother, I, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial today because of my hope in the resurrection. Which to you and I doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But when the Pharisees believe in a physical resurrection and the Sadducees don't believe in a physical resurrection, those are fighting words. And so what ensues is a verbal brawl that almost results in Paul being torn apart. And ironically, the Roman uh, commander saves Paul yet again and delivers him out of the hands of the Jews. That's episode one. Episode two of Paul's path to Rome is the attempted assassination of Paul. Paul is being held under Roman guard when, unbeknownst to him at that moment, 40 Jews have made an oath saying, we will eat nothing and drink nothing until we kill the Apostle Paul. Which makes you wonder, what happened to those 40 guys since Paul went on to live, right? Took an oath not to eat or drink anything. How did that work out for you? But regardless, Paul's nephew just happens to hear, just happens to hear that this is going to happen. And so he reports the assassination attempt to Paul. And then Paul has his nephew go to the commander. And the commander, he reports to the commander the attempt. And so the commander, the Roman commander, think about this, saves Paul yet again for a third time and has him taken by an enormous bodyguard to Caesarea overnight, where he will stand on trial, not before the Jews, but before the Roman governor at Herod's palace at Caesarea. That's episode two. Episode three, trials before governors Felix and Festus. Felix was a, a questionable character, uh, to put it lightly. Uh, Felix was a crook. Uh, he was a poor leader. He was later ousted by Rome for mishandling a conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, his wife, uh, he came to have by an adulterous relationship, and so he's not really that upstanding of a citizen, and that's who Paul is going to stand before in trial. Funny enough, Felix wants to listen to the Apostle Paul. And once again, the Apostle Paul recounts how he's not guilty of the blasphemy and the rioting that the Jews are accusing him of, but instead, he stands on trial because of his, his hope in the resurrection. He's standing on trial because God's called him to be a witness. And, ironically, as he teaches about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment... Felix, the upstanding character, decides, I don't want to listen to Paul anymore. And so he stashes him away in prison for two years. Sometimes we read the book of Acts and we just think one thing after the other, but in one little verse we're told Paul spends two years 
locked away in prison. And we get upset whenever our plans get moved and uh, get adjusted. Paul's sitting in a prison for two years until Festus becomes governor of the area under Roman rule. We don't know a whole lot about Festus, but apparently he was a better guy than Felix was, and he listens to the Apostle Paul. And Festus was trying to do the Jews a favor, okay? He's the new governor. He wants to be on the good side of the Jews so that Roman peace doesn't get messed up in the region. And so he says to Paul, listen, would you be willing to be tried before me in Jerusalem? And Paul says, actually, no. I appeal to Caesar, which he's able to do that because not only is he a Jew, but he was born a Roman citizen. And so part of his rights as a Roman citizen is to appeal for trial before the emperor himself, which at this time was a nice guy named Nero. So consider the day and time that Paul lives in and what it meant to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And so Festus agrees, okay, if you want to go to Caesar, you'll go to Caesar. And that brings us to episode four in Paul's trial before Agrippa. Agrippa is another interesting character, colorful character. He was really the puppet king of Rome. He's technically Jewish. He, any authority he has has been given to him by Rome. He oversees the temple and the priests who get to serve there. He's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who ruled during the time of Christ. And his queen is his sister. So, you fill in the blanks there. It's kind of a weird situation. But Agrippa hears about Paul, and he too wants to listen to him. And so if you can imagine, and I've had the privilege of actually going to Caesarea to the amphitheater where Paul stood trial before Agrippa, here comes this man, chained, who's been beaten, who's been stoned, who's been mocked, and he's standing before kings and queens and governors and commanders testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's episode four. And so we've just walked through Acts 22, 30 through 26, 32, but we're not done yet, so just get comfortable. What we want to do, though, is now that we've surveyed the trajectory of Paul's path to Rome, we want to ask, okay, what is it that the Holy Spirit, through the author Luke, is revealing to us through the life of Paul? What can we observe from the text that's repeated? What, is, what are the themes that clearly the Holy Spirit wants us to walk away with as we observe and read and study the text? And here's the main idea that I want you to walk away with today. Your destiny is to testify to the gospel until Christ calls you to His eternal home. Your destiny is to testify to the gospel until Christ calls you to His eternal home. Now, for those of you who are saying, well, that seems a little vague, let me clarify. If you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, you can be 100% certain that your purpose in life is to point people to Jesus. I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but on the authority of God's Word, I can tell you, you have been destined to tell people about Jesus Christ. And here's why that's so encouraging, or should be so encouraging. Because perhaps some of you are single this morning, and you're asking, well, who should I marry? 
Or where should I go to college? Or what job should I take? Or what car should I drive? Or what house should I buy? All of those questions should be framed around this central purpose in your life that you are called to testify to the gospel. And when that becomes the driving force of your life, all of those other questions are shaped and colored in light of that point. So whether you're a stay-at-home mom, you're a lawyer, you're a plumber, you're a pastor, your purpose in life is to be like Jesus and to point other people to Jesus. Period. And there's great comfort in the clarity of that, even if each one of our stories are unique. And as we look at the Apostle Paul's life and we see how God's sovereign purpose is unfolding in his story, we walk away with four ways that we can mimic his life so that we can faithfully endure whatever we come through in this life. Number one, we endure for the sake of Christ by taking courage in God's sovereignty over every circumstance of our life. By taking courage in God's sovereignty over every circumstance of our life. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Why is it necessary? Well, as he later says in Acts 26, recounting his salvation story, I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When you step back and you look at Paul's life then, you begin to realize that every aspect of his story was brought about by God's sovereign plan. The fact that Paul is both a Jew and a Roman citizen means that he has platforms to speak the gospel to Jews and to Greeks. Or it just so happens that his nephew overhears the assassination plot so that he can go and tell the Roman commander, so the Roman commander can save Paul's life for a third time. It just so happens that because he's Roman, he's able to appeal to the emperor so that he can have an audience with Rome itself. Every aspect of Paul's life, including everything pre-Jesus, if we can put it that way. His story before he came to Christ, when he came to Christ, and everything after was a part of this grand story that God was weaving in his life. But it's not just the Apostle Paul. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, with another man who was falsely accused and spent two years in prison. A man named Joseph from the book of Genesis, chapter 50 falsely accused of, of sleeping with his master's wife, thrown into prison. He had been sold into slavery prior to that by his brothers for no good reason. We would look at that and say, what good could come from that? And yet, in God's sovereignty, he raises Joseph up to be second in command of Egypt. And through the wisdom given to him, he saves the entire region from famine. When Joseph and his brother's father die, 
the brothers come together and say, okay, Joseph probably doesn't think too highly of the fact that we sold him into slavery. So he's probably going to try to get revenge on us. So we should tell him that dad said after he's gone, you should be nice to your brothers. And they come and tell him this and listen to what Joseph says in Genesis 50. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. What does that mean? It may be a mystery to us, brothers and sisters, but even behind everything evil that takes place in your life stands a sovereign God who is working it for your good and for His glory. That may be confusing, but it's meant to bring you confidence and comfort. It's meant to give you boldness in the face of what to the world seems like a hopeless situation. Because you know that God is reigning and ruling sovereignly over the universe and nothing takes place apart from His eternal plan. And that means whether you're walking through a pandemic or an election, you can rest assured that God is still in control. Or as he is going to say in Romans chapter 8, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. What's so interesting about that verse is the past tense of the, of the word glorified. Glorification isn't something that takes place until you go home to be with the Lord. So why does he use the past tense? Because when God says it, it's as good as done. You don't have to question if God is going to come through or not. If God is going to be faithful. If God is going to do what He said He will do. God always does what He says He will do. And nothing can thwart His plans which gives you and I, finite creatures, hope in the midst of every circumstance of our life. Probably one of the books that you had to read growing up was Corrie ten Boom's memoir, The Hiding Place, where she recounts her family's trials as they walked through a Nazi concentration camp. And part of her story, she recounts how they were moved to a new barrack and as they entered that barrack, it smelled terrible. It was claustrophobic. They were basically having to sleep on top of each other. And worst of all, it was infested with fleas. And as Corey and her sister Betsy were laying there that evening, they were talking with each other and praying. Betsy reminded Corey how just that morning they had read from 1 Thessalonians that, that they are to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And so they begin to pray. And Betsy begins telling Corey what, what they are to thank God for. And they name one thing after the next. And finally, Betsy says, and thank God for the fleas. And Corey writes, at that point I was wondering, can God really use fleas for any good? But as time would tell they were able to carry out Bible studies and to share the gospel with fellow prisoners in their barracks because the guards wouldn't come in. And when they inquired 
through various means as to why the guards wouldn't come in, it was because the barracks were infested with fleas. So can God use even fleas for His glory? Absolutely. Which means every strange or terrible thing that happens in your life, God is working for your good and His glory. We can rest in His sovereignty. Secondly, we endure faithfully for the sake of Christ by not giving unbelievers a reason to doubt the power of the gospel. By not giving unbelievers a reason to doubt the power of the gospel. Acts 23.1, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. 24 verse 16, I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. 25 verses 7 through 8, neither against the Jewish law nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. And in verses 10 and 11 of 25, I am standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as even you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul understood something that is so important for you and I. He understood that the gospel he proclaimed could be undermined in the eyes of his opponents if his words and his actions weren't laced with the character of Christ. Now here's the reality. People cannot be saved simply because they observe your life. But your life will either help them or hinder them in hearing the gospel based on how you live. You have been called to live in such a way that your words and your actions garner the gospel of Jesus Christ so that when people see you and hear you talk about the gospel, they are drawn to Jesus rather than repelled from Him. You are a witness of Christ. You are, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, an ambassador for Christ. You're not your own. You're not free to live however you want to. If His Word tells you how to live, you're to do what He says, regardless of how you feel about it, because you are a witness of Christ Jesus. And that means whether you're at work, or you're at home, or you're on social media, or sitting behind your computer screen, wherever you go, your aim is to point people to Jesus not cloud their view of Jesus. And that's especially important in a season like this one where tensions and emotions are high. And we're tempted just to let things roll off our tongue. We're frustrated. Walking through this election, walking through this pandemic, walking through financial hardship. But brothers and sisters, you've been called to something higher and greater than how normal people live. You've been called to be a witness of Jesus Christ. Which is why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day He visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. 
For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. What are your words and actions before unbelievers, before believers for that matter, say about your ultimate allegiance in this life? Who you sleep with, how you use your money, the way you go about your job, the words that you use in front of your kids, all of it is meant to be an arrow that points people to Christ and Him crucified. None of us will be perfect this side of heaven, but by the Spirit, we are able to put to death the sinful deeds of the flesh and to walk according to God's Word. What is your life saying? That you profess Christ or you profess yourself? There's a third thing that we need to see about how we endure for the sake of Christ. And that is by putting our hope in the certainty of the resurrection. Putting our hope in the certainty of the resurrection. I think this is so fascinating. That time and time again, as Paul testifies in these different trials, not only does he go back to the Old Testament, but he also emphasizes the priority of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and therefore, the believer's resurrection from the dead. He says in chapter 23, verse 6, when Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Or as he says in chapter 26, when he's standing before Agrippa, to this very day I've had help from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Or as he says in chapter 24, verse 15, there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, everything that Paul did was in light of the coming resurrection of the dead. On the one hand, there's hope. Because if you're in Christ, you know that you don't face judgment that you deserve because Christ absorbed that judgment for you. On the other hand, you know that you will stand and give an account of your life and you will be rewarded based on whether you served yourself or you served Christ. And so Paul made it his aim to live for Christ. Or as he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And that's why for you and I, we've got to stop, if I can paraphrase C.S. Lewis here, settling for playing in mud puddles when God has offered us a vacation by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God has called you to more than the fleeting pleasures of sin. And by looking to the resurrection and the coming of Christ, when we'll be raised with Him and we'll meet Him in the air, and we'll be given new bodies that will reign with Him forever, when that is our focus, we can endure anything for the sake of Christ. Because Christ is better even when your flesh is crying out to gratify itself, 
When you keep your eyes on Jesus, on His resurrection, on your coming resurrection, you can say, Jesus is better. I can delay the gratification of those things because I know my heart is satisfied in Christ alone. And that's why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4, For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I recently performed the funeral of a a dear sister in Christ who is a member of the church that I pastored in Maryland. And I'll never forget that Wednesday night Bible study when the Lord, just in His grace, it was almost as if the Holy Spirit let me see the light come on in her heart. And she came to love Jesus and to treasure the gospel and just eat up God's word. And the way she spoke to people and the way she treated people and her demeanor changed. You could see in her the hope of glory. So that when she was diagnosed later with pancreatic cancer, and she suffered greatly through that, she had real hope. Not that she was going to get better in this life, but that she was going to put off this tent and that she was going to go be with the Lord and that one day the corruptible would put on what is incorruptible. The mortal would put on immortality and she would get to see Jesus face to face. This might sound morbid to you, but as a pastor, on the one hand, one of the hardest things you'll ever do is preach the funeral of an unbeliever. Because you can't comfort anyone in that room with, we know where so-and-so is today. On the other hand, one of the greatest privileges of being a pastor is preaching the funeral of a believer. Not because we're glad that that person's gone, but because we know that person knows what the Apostle Paul said. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That means when you suffer in this life, and your eyes are on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, you can endure with joy. Not because things are going to work out better here, but because you're going to go be with Him. And then, then you'll be truly satisfied, and everything will be as it should be. So if only Christ can satisfy the longings of your heart, Are you putting your hope in what is to come or in what already is? If you're putting it in anything else other than Christ, you'll be disappointed. Fourth and finally, we endure for the sake of Christ by giving our energy to persuading people about Christ instead of seeking their approval. By giving our energy to persuading people about Christ instead of seeking their approval. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye that you're standing there in the amphitheater. The Mediterranean Sea is at your back. The wind coming off of the sea carries the Apostle Paul's voice into the amphitheater. Here is this man 
falsely accused, hands and feet in chains, beaten and mocked, and yet testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that he knows freedom in a way that the king and queen and governors and commanders and everyone in their pomp and circumstance do not know. And he, standing before them, recounting once again what Christ had done to his life and how he had rescued him, says, we see here in verse 24 of Acts chapter 26, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, listen to this boldness. Do you believe in the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. As Al Mohler has put it, it is better to live as a prisoner who belongs to Jesus than a free man without a relationship with God. The year was... 1553, Mary Tudor was the queen. She was the daughter of King Henry VIII. And she made it her mission to eradicate Protestantism from England and to bring back Roman Catholicism. And so she did everything in her power to eliminate the gospel from being preached. So much so that as one historian records, almost 300 Protestant leaders were burned at the stake, while countless others were imprisoned or went into exile. And for those reasons and more, we know her to this day as Bloody Mary. In order to solidify her reforms, though, Mary sought to make an example of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer was imprisoned and under pressure and torture, was eventually signed a letter of recantation, essentially saying he was giving up his Protestant convictions. And to make matters worse, even though he had recanted, Cranmer was then forced to watch from his prison cell as his two close associates, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were burned together back-to-back at the end of Broad Street in Oxford. Latimer, aged about 80, was the first to die, shouting through the flames, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Unfortunately for Ridley, the wood had been laid badly around him so that he suffered terribly, his legs burning off before the rest of him was touched by the flames. The spectators that had gathered for the sport were weeping as they watched Latimer and Ridley suffer. And though Cranmer had recanted his beliefs, as he watched his brothers suffer for the sake of the gospel, it profoundly impacted him. So that rather than living for the praises of men, 
he made his mind up that he would testify to the gospel of God. So that even though despite he, his recanting, Mary said, nope, we're going to burn you at the stake as well, at the same place that Latimer and Ridley were burned. But it was a decision that would more than undo Mary's victory. Because when Cranmer came to the stake, he refused to read out his recantation letter. Instead, he stated boldly that he was indeed a Protestant, though a cowardly one, for, for forsaking his principles. And in consequence, he announced, For as much as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall, be fir- shall first be punished therefore. And he was true to his word. As the fires were lit, he held out the hand that had signed his recantation so that it might burn first. And though Cranmer had been silenced, the gospel he had clung to had not. Mary died two years later. Her sister Elizabeth took the throne, and the gospel began to spread like fire, just as Latimer had said as he faced the flames. Now, you and I might not face that situation, but a day is coming where you will have to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. And your answer will either be based on a fear of God or a fear of man. On your preference over hearing the approval of your peers or of hearing your Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But that comes back to the question, what is your purpose? What is your destiny? Is it to live however you want to in the flesh? Or is it to live to point people to Jesus Christ? If you're a believer today, just like the video Brandon and Jackie were in, what is holding you back from being obedient? If God has called you to be His witness, then every sacrifice you could ever make is worth it. And when we stand before Jesus face to face, we will know it was worth it. So will you make up your mind now to be a faithful witness? despite the suffering to come, because Christ is enough. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, just in love, let me ask you, what are you putting your hope in? And the suffering that you're walking through in life right now, what's the point? If you're in Christ, you know there is a purpose to everything that happens in your life, because your destiny is to testify to the gospel until Christ takes you to his eternal home.